0: Collected works of K.A. Krishna Swami year. This is the seventh book in the Adhyatma Prakash Karyalaya English series. We are seeing. In that, we have already seen, uh, we have already started meditations. Uh, three sessions we have finished in meditations. So, today's is the uh, fourth session under meditations. Topic is for in the fourth session, the topic is illusory imposition of mutual attributes. That is Tat and Tvam hmm? or uh, mutual attributes, illusory imposition. Hmm? We think body as us ourselves and spirit or soul as. Something else. Hmm? I am the body. This is my soul. Actually, we have to take it as I am the soul. This is my body. So, the vice versa. That is the topic. Om Shri Gurubhyo Namaha Harihi Om Shri Ganesha Janamaha Dr. Krishna Murthy Shastri Dambayapunaccha Bantwala Talup, Dakshin Karanajilla Karnataka, India, Bharat Illusory imposition of mutual attributes from collected works of K. Swami under Meditations Main Heading. If then outsideness itself is a mistaken notion, so is insideness. The self, therefore, is neither outside nor inside. Antar Bahischa Sarvam Neither near nor distant. Hmm? Natadure natadvantike hmm? tadvantike tad Upanishad. Neither near nor distant, but being the only thing that exists in all and everywhere, and again, sarvavyapta. And again, none of what we see as these are phenomena bound by the laws of time and space. Here then is finally cleared up the mystery about the cosmos. It has no independent reality and is nothing but is only illusively appearing as something additional or second to the self. If adopting our definition of reality as that which can boast of an unbroken continuity of existence, we wish to determine whether the self or the percept it is that deserves the name we find people harbouring singularly preposterous notions concerning the point the self which is the source of all our knowledge about an existence at all is fancied to be fleeting and transient while the world itself percept is supposed to be eternally capable of Bringing into existence a successive number of what are called souls, which come into birth in time and which therefore disappear in time. From the point of view of the system, we perceive that objects alone are capable of destruction, while later can never be predicated of the subject which ever accompanies us through all our experience as the seer or the observer. It is this. Ludicrous mistake committed by all that Shankara calls the illusory imposition of mutual attributes, the self of which we predicate existence in the first instance, on which we inevitably assume in all our calculations and operations being conceived to be short-lived and momentary, while the world whose existence is presumed without sufficient authority is believed to be without a beginning or an end. This idea of eternity is inborn with us and when it is associated with the proper thing is quite significant, but when we call the universe eternal, while in the same breath we admit our ephemeral nature, we thereby betray our own want of evidence for authority to guide us to establish the eternal existence of what we see only during the shortest period or portion of time. The fact is when we are asserting the eternity of the world, we are attributing eternity to ourselves and conversely when we come to think of ourselves as only existent through a short period of time, we are precisely describing the evanescent nature of the world. The problem of perception, how solved? So this is the third session we are seeing the main topic meditations this is the uh, false misconception uh, or mutual uh, illusion the subtopic we are seeing under that now the problem of perception how solved the problem of perceptual knowledge may be started in the following words If the objects i see lie outside of me how i am how am i able to perceive them directly that is without becoming conscious at the same time of the operation of the senses through whose medium i notice them and yet in all normal vision such is the case we never think for instance of the changes going on in the eye as we direct it to perceive a new object but we see the later directly and yet as though they were outside of us. This could be explained only on the supposition that the world that we see directly is one of our own creation. The senses an inadequate guide to truth. Supposing we enquire what is the evidence that I can look upon as final in leading to truth, the reply that a realist can give is by no means satisfactory or conclusive. For going on the common sense principle, he would say you may rely on your senses, but if you punish, like if you push him further and ask what credentials the senses possess to make them authoritative on points of truth or accuracy, the realist is nonplussed. nonplussed. He could only reply that we have no other means of ascertaining the truth if we ignore the senses. In the next place, if you put the query. Whether the senses are not often proved to have been at fault even in dealing with the facts of phenomenal world and ask how they could be relied on to faithfully represent the truths of the metaphysical sphere, he would either acknowledge no such higher existence or if he does still persist in the trustworthiness of the senses, our observations are being supposed to be generally under correction. We now turn to the distinction that we maintain between dreaming and wakeful experiences. In both cases we feel or fancy, our senses are acting and we are no less sure of the certainty of the one series of phenomena at the time of their occurrence than we are of that of the other as soon as one state gives place to the other. Here, then, is a strong instance of the senses being an inadequate guide so far as concluding about the reality of the phenomena they represent is concerned. Next is the change of wakeful and dreaming states, what it implies. Now there is Such a thing as change of states of consciousness, the dreaming and wakeful experiences being inexplicable otherwise and beyond doubt they succeed each other producing the unmistakable contrast. Their points of difference seem to be that the dreaming experiences are wild momentary changeable and unstable owing to their not being subject to any laws of regularity or even of possibility while the wakeful are so systematic and orderly that their comparative stability gives rise to our belief in their reality but their common character is and This deserves the attention and scrutiny of the realists that during their respective periods they are stamped with an appearance of reality so wonderfully and so deep that some realists hold that whatever things happen in our dreams are all real. The fact seems to be that whenever the human mind is thrown into the attitude of representing, it naturally bears with it or begets the feeling of reality as without this feeling representation itself will be impossible. When the mind in the period preceding our waking first rouses itself and puts itself in communication with the inner organs of sense and starts them working, the dream world is created. When it protrudes its feelers out up to the outer or external organs of perception and sets them going, the wakeful world is brought into existence. Thus, the reality of the world being a fiction of ignorance, its creation, preservation and destruction depend entirely on our states of consciousness, which in their turn are also the result of not possessing in at a right apprehension of the true nature of the soul. Next, Kant's Analysis of the Mind Let us here state the Kantian method of mental analysis in a clear manner. He proceeded as follows If time, space, and causality were elements inseparable of the external world and had absolutely nothing to do with the mind, then since the latter is only an organ of perception, it should only be able to cog- cogitate in this wise as the external world is independent of me, and its nature, individuality, and character are quite accidental to me. They cannot and need not conform to my expectations, neither should any experience of mine about them induce in me a feeling of absolute or apodictic necessity. In other words, the mind must be able to operate with its concepts in all manner of fanciful or possible ways and on this mental power no extraneous attribute of the world should be able to put any restriction. But in reality we find the mind enjoys no such absolute liberty in its conception of the external universe as it is hopelessly bound down by these fundamental forms, time, space and causality. For instance we may think of a house as big or small, high or low, existing in a place or not existing there, but we have no option of excluding from our notion of a house its space, time and causality. Independent Existence what? If it is argued that our experience as regards all objects being uniform in these respects, and as our mind can work with only the materials supplied by experience, these three factors by constant habit we have come to associate as the inseparable elements of our notions of all objects making it inconceivable otherwise, then the futile nature of this view can be very easily made apparent. Now our inference can be correct only in connection with the examples we have considered. With reference to those we have not seen or observed and those we never can see or observe or use any of our senses by way of apprehending, we are warranted only in making surmises. Our ideas should be, therefore, most vague and imperfect concerning them, such as the most distant stars, the seen and the unseen. It is then th- thus quite hopeless for any two men to entertain an uniform uniformity of opinion about their nature. Nevertheless, we are all agreed that wherever these worlds may be or whatever they be, they must have assumed their present form at some particular time and they must be filling some portion of space necessarily. Now, how are we justified in such dogmatic assertions? We are all conscious of the concession. concession. We are willing to make in regard to their differences in nature, position, condition and properties according to different people's fancy or uh, credulity or conviction. But there is a limit we cannot overstep. We cannot allow of any of these objects perceptible or as yet only conceivable to be independent of the laws of time, space and causality. The Conclusion Time and cause are the inherent forms of the mind. What does this uh, deep-rooted, ineradicable dogmatism means? Does it mean that beyond certain limits we do not wish to be reasonable or apply the laws of reason that on other occasions we are all so ready to do? What a wonderful unlooked for result this is. Everyone clamors for reason when he wishes to be convinced as though her operations he considered to be universally available and conclusive and yet if you push the human mind to an extreme we find there are some things wherein it distrusts reason and would fain cling to its own judgment all reason notwithstanding what does it all show all show only that here we have come to touch the boundaries of human knowledge and the key to the whole mystery lies in the plain fact that the mind cannot divest itself of these forms of ultimate these forms ultimately even though it may exert itself ever so willingly time and cause cannot pertain both to the world and the mind If then it is maintained that on the one hand, time, space, etc. form the inseparable factors of the external world and on the other, they are also the inherent functions of the mind. We can only point out the extremely conjectural or presumptive nature of this assertion to uphold, which no researchers carried on in any department of science can ever be made auxiliary or subservient. At best, it will be investing the world with but a chimerical reality of no immediate or immediate consequence. Two instincts of the human mind, the true and the false. Again, a realist must necessarily be a materialist. For if matter is real, it is equally certain that there is nothing else can matter in the whole universe. Those that cling to a real spiritual world at the same time simply follow the inclination of their own instincts without being however prepared to accept all the consequences it involves to be consistent. The instincts are true, the false and the true. The true is that which points to the inner self in contradistinction to the outer body and in fact to the world and emphasizes its existence before that that of all others. The false is connected with that fundamental law of mental representation by which the perceived object is conceived to be real. God also bo- bound by time, etc., is he be external. If he be external. It is another unpleasant necessity that we should confess God Himself as bound by laws of time, etc., if the later circumscribe all objects god also among others there is nothing at least for reason to bring forward to lay claim to the eternity etc of a supreme being perception no proof of reality again in perception a proof of reality again is perception a proof of reality in that case our own self should be set down as unreal for it is never perceived but if perception is not sufficient What other proof is available for alleging that the world is real? A real thing, self, may be unperceived, while a perceived thing, such as the mirage, may be unreal. Regularity and uniformity of sensations. No criterion for reality. Supposing one still is inclined to justify his idea of the reality of the percept on the score of its giving rise to a regular series of sensations which obey a certain law and can both be predicted and inferred with scientific precision. Then we reply that the sense of stability arises from our inability to take cognizance of every minute morphological change that takes place in things around us and consequently tacitly by assuming a certain group of stable elements in the midst of a set of more easily noticeable changes in other respects and our sense of their regularity, uniformity and precision is all to be traced to the a priori laws of mathematics and science which are embedded in our intellect. These laws are obeyed most implicitly both in our conscious and in our con- unconscious operations of the intellect one piece of log for instance roughly looks as if it were twice the other and when we measure it with exactitude up to inches we find that our rough estimate was quite correct all the changes in the organic and inorganic world are strictly corresponding to the causes at work and our connecting them in the form of a law is a constitutional necessity of our intellect. The latter may be compared not inappropriately to a kaleidoscope, the symmetry of form seen through which is its own and not falling. Thus, regularity, beauty of form and cause belong to the mind acting in concert with the senses and whatever might be the world though entirely different from the present one we should still be struck by the same uniformity and exactitude because the latter are the fragments or figments of our imagination rather than of the world in any case we might in distinguishing between the dream and the wakeful states have to deal with the stable and unstable worlds unfolded to us in those conditions that is of appearances apparently unconnected and of those capable of permanent repetition with some show of comparative stability. This would by no means argue the existence of another entity, the world. A Misleading Analogy If it be contended that we know our own self to exist because of its stability or ability to persist through changes of condition, and an extension of the same logic would justify our conception of the world as another reality because of its unmistakable stability, then we reply, not so. The world shows no stability at all, if you follow it through all the changes or modifications it undergoes through ages, cycles and, and so, except perhaps in a fanciful substratum of atoms operating in space through time and we have already seen that this substratum is delusive as it is subjective and not objective. In the tech in the next place, even in our own daily experience, we find the world nearly annihilating itself daily in our dreams and completely so during sound sleep. So its stability is the result of a regular operation of the intellect with its a priori functions in conjunction with the senses and certain other secondary qualities of the mind such as retentiveness etc. The existence of our self is felt, not inferred, like that of the world. In the next place, we do not infer the existence of our self from the fact of its running as a continuous or unbroken thread through our three states, but we feel it in a peculiar manner because in the nature of the things it is impossible, we could ignore it as the consciousness of self is the requisite for all experiencing and passive moods. In regard to the world its existence we do not feel in the same manner as we find we can dispense with it altogether in one state of our consciousness at least and play at pitch and toss with it in another. Hume not realizing this difference in the modes of reasoning failed to appreciate the value of Berkeley's teaching and there is no doubt that there are still many to whom this berkeleyan method is imperfect or mysterious while on the one hand we recognize ourselves in spite of ourselves and without need of evidence we on the other hand should infer the existence of an external world from certain properties we notice stability for instance we thus see that the latter is at best problematical while the former is to us the highest certainty, the self. The absurd position of a realist would be, what we see is not the world, the real world we cannot see but still it exists, why? Because we see what is not the world and from it should infer the real one. So here we end this fourth session under meditations. Next fifth session, let us see in the next uh, day or tomorrow. Hare Rama Om Tachat Loka Samastha Sukhino Sukhino Let peace prevail in the whole world. Om Tachat